Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. As we're wrapping up this series today, and as we lost an hour of sleep, I thought what better way to start than to give you some useless history that you've never really wondered about. Uh, Because I want to tell you about the history of the bumper sticker. I don't know if you're like me, but I was like, we've been talking about bumper stickers this whole time, but I always get fascinated by like weird history or like where did things come from? And and so I did a little bit of research this week and uh, discovered the history of the bumper sticker and how it showed up as this like cultural icon. So first, bumpers had to show up and uh, the original cars were not designed with bumpers because they were designed kind of more in the form of a horseless carriage, so like they didn't have bumpers on the front. But it was in 1927 uh, when the Ford Model A rolled off the line, and it was the very first car that had a bumper. I guess they like ran into each other enough times that they decided like we should add something crunchy to like soften the blow or whatever. But uh, bumpers showed up in 1927. It wasn't until about 20 years later in 1946 when the first bumper sticker was officially designed and released. Uh, In that 20-year gap, uh, people occasionally would make like cardboard signs and hang them on their brand new bumpers, but as you can imagine, those signs didn't last for long. Uh, But in 1946, a man named Forrest P. Gill is given credit for designing the very first ever bumper sticker, and it was because he had this surplus of goods after World War II. I don't know why he had them, but specifically he had a surplus of adhesive-backed paper and fluorescent paint. And so Forrest was like, what can I make with this? And there he is uh, installing bumper stickers. You can see right down there on the bumper, that sweet ride. Uh, He installed the bumper stickers. They caught on like wildfire. And fun fact about Forrest Gill, he started a company that actually still exists to this day producing bumper stickers and print material and marketing stuff. So if you ever need something printed, I guess Forrest can be your guy. Uh, But he created these. It wasn't for uh, about another decade or so uh, before the political world caught on to the bumper sticker uh, because in 1952, they got political with the I Like Ike campaign for uh, President Eisenhower. Maybe you heard about that or remember that uh, from history class. But uh, this is a hugely successful campaign, and uh, we can blame President Eisenhower for some of the madness that we see on the roads today, right, as the political world has fully embraced the use of the bumper sticker. Uh, if you fast forward another couple of decades, there's another little milestone in bumper sticker history. Some of you maybe uh, remember this, or some of you maybe even have this to this day, but the uh, baby on board sticker rolled out in 1984. And this sticker always cracks me up, because it's like, were you going to hit him until you stall this sticker? Like, you're like, oh, no, there's a baby, like, new target. I don't know. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, except um, I, I actually, as I was looking up bumper sticker stuff, because this is what I do with my week, I, uh, I found a Washington Post headline that I feel like captures the feeling of parenthood I- in such an amazing way. It was about this bumper sticker, and the headline was how a cutesy decal embodies the enduring terror of parenthood. <laughs> Because, right, as you're driving around with, like, that little one in there, especially for the first time, you're like, maybe this sticker will help, right? There's crazy people out there. I don't know. But So, anyway, there's Baby on board. Uh, as you know, the, the bumper sticker industry has continued to move forward to present day. You can find a bumper sticker for anything. Uh, I didn't grab the specific date, but in, like, the early 2000s, there was a Supreme Court case about whether or not bumper stickers uh, were protected by the First Amendment. A- and they found, yes, they were. So, you can have all kinds of offensive things on your car or whatever you want, uh, according to the government at least. Uh, But 
one of the most important bumper stickers I think that we could heed throughout this series. In fact, if you've heard nothing else that I've said, but you like remember this picture in your mind, this may be the most helpful thing you get, at least as it relates to bumper stickers. I saw this bumper sticker that says, my mind was changed by a bumper sticker, said no one ever. Right, and isn't that true? Like maybe you've seen it before and you've been like frustrated or you've been enraged by a bumper sticker. Maybe you found them funny, but have you ever just been like, wow, I never thought of it that way. Those two lines on the back of their bumper just changed everything for me. Probably not, okay, probably not. And uh, the reason I'm talking about bumper stickers today, if you don't know why I'm rambling about this or or maybe you've slept since then, uh, is we're actually using this idea of bumper sticker theology as a lens through which we can explore some of the common phrases and ideas that have shown up in our Christian culture, especially here in America. We have these phrases that, uh, wherever they came from over time, have kind of been adopted and carried with Jesus followers uh, as kind of like portable language to help us remember spiritual truths. Uh, But what we're doing in this series, whether or not they were actually on bumper stickers or not, I don't know. But we're looking at these phrases that became popular in our Christian culture and and trying to like discover, is there really truth behind those phrases? Uh, Did the phrases that we've adopted in, in our cultural Christianity actually reflect what God is really like, or are they saying something entirely different altogether? And and I'm not here to just knock on catchy, memorable phrases. Uh, I try and like make the things that I teach somewhat catchy and somewhat memorable so that it's not just like an hour on Sunday and then you take a nap and you forget all about it, Uh, but so that we can remember things and so that we can apply them in our lives. That's a helpful tool that we can use, so there's nothing wrong with being catchy, but the question that we have to ask, uh, really with anything that we encounter, is is it really true? Is it really accurate, especially with some of these phrases that we've picked up along the way. We're asking the question, does this really reflect what God is like and what the story of scripture tells us about who we are in relation to God and what it looks like to really follow him? And on the surface, it may feel like I'm nitpicking, right? It may seem like the beliefs behind these little phrases, like they're pretty harmless, they're pretty simple. But the truth is, the language that we use and the way that we describe God and the way that we think about God really does matter. It can shape what our faith experience is like. And and if we get it wrong, it can be really dangerous because we either personally in our own faith journey can assume things about God that actually aren't true, or we can impact other people who who see or hear the language that we use and the way that we live out our faith, and they make assumptions about who God is and what God is like that may or may not be accurate. So we're trying to get it right, and I'll give you a quick recap of where we've been. On week one, uh, we looked at this popular phrase that God won't give you more than you can handle. And what we said is that phrase basically was a bad game of telephone that we played with the Apostle Paul, who wrote a phrase uh, in a letter to an early church that God won't tempt us beyond what we can bear. But as that's been passed on and kind of wrapped up in cultural and changed over the years, uh, we somehow took that to mean that God won't give us more burdens in life than we can bear, that God won't give us more difficult circumstances in our life than we can bear. And, And what we said on week one is that really makes no sense in light of the context of the story of God. Because basically every person that God shows up in their life and moves in a powerful way, he does it in a moment where they're given something that's bigger than what they can handle, and then God shows up and meets them in their area of need. They have faith in God to meet them in a circumstance that's beyond what they can handle. So the hard truth uh, that we said on week one is sometimes life is more than you can handle. Sometimes you will face more in life than you can handle in your own strength, but the good news is that God will help you handle all that you've been given. Sometimes you'll be given more than you can handle, but God will help you handle everything that you've been given. He's with each of us in every situation and every circumstance. In week two, uh, we talked about another popular idea that God helps those who help themselves. 
And uh, this one is actually nowhere in the Bible, although seven out of 10 Bible-believing, church-going, professing Christians think that it's in the Bible. So that's another conversation for another day. But uh, this one's actually just kind of like an American cultural idea that we've latched onto. Uh, But it's something that people kind of think is true, that that it's a good thing to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and get your stuff together, that God helps those who help themselves. But when you actually open scripture, and you read the story of how God shows up and what he says about us, the opposite of that is the truth, that God actually helps those who can't help themselves. In fact, it's written that when we were still sinners or while we were still helpless, Christ died for us, that he moved in our direction when we were totally helpless and totally unable to move back in his direction. So God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And then last week, uh, we went for a doozy. It was uh, everything happens for a reason. And I mildly ranted about this because I think that this uh, phrase is really, really popular and also really, really dangerous. And it can be really damaging to people, especially as they go through difficult times. We often turn to this because we want an answer for the things that we can't explain in life. Uh, But we talked about the different perspectives behind this idea. We talked about an idea called determinism, which basically says that God determines everything that happens. And we said that that can't possibly be true because that puts way too much on God and ignores our own personal responsibility. But we said the opposite can't be true either. That was deism, this idea that God just spun up the world and then like walked away from it. Now it's up to us. Uh, That doesn't make sense because of what I just said, right? Jesus moved in our direction. He entered into our human history. So God still interacts with us in some way. And that led us to talk about this idea of dominion, that at the very beginning, when God created everything, he ruled over the creation. But when he creates humans, he actually gives us dominion or the authority to rule over this world with him. And what that means is that we have the freedom to make choices. And what that means is that not everything that we choose to do ultimately is God's will. And we kind of know this on the surface, but as we teased it out, we acknowledge that not everything happens for a reason. Sometimes things happen because we make bad choices and we face consequences. Sometimes things happen because somebody else makes a bad choice and it impacts us. Sometimes things just happen and we don't really have an explanation. And in the midst of the randomness and maybe the unsettledness of that truth, we did bring some good news. And the good news is this, it's that God can use everything that happens for a reason. Not everything happens for a reason, but God can use everything that happens for a reason because God relentlessly bends our stories back towards redemption and and back towards grace and back towards justice and back towards wholeness and the way that he designed the world to work. And so the reason that this series is important, the reason that uh, we've been trying to spotlight some of these popular phrases and discover the truth or maybe not so much truth that's behind them is this. We've said that it's really easy to sound biblical without being biblically sound. It's really easy to say things that sound true without actually aligning with the story of God and the way that God's revealed himself through it. And so most of these sayings that we've looked at, they have enough truth in them to kind of sound biblical, right? On the surface, maybe you've even heard them before and you're like, yeah, that that makes sense, that seems right. But if you actually like look under the hood, if you actually dig into it a little farther, the question is, do these ideas really match in the story of God and the character of God that's revealed through it? And so this morning, uh, we're gonna look at one more and it may be the cheesiest, but just as equally dangerous as the others, we're gonna look at this phrase that God is my co-pilot. And just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard that before today, that idea that God is my co-pilot? 
Okay, cool. That's about what the first service was like. It was like a 50-50 split. Some of us have, some of us haven't. Um, I've got to confess today, I was wrong about the origins of this one. So if you've been here like all four weeks or you were here, I think on week one I said this, and you're like keeping score on me, I've got to own when I'm wrong. And uh, I, I went researching like, okay, where'd this come from? And I found out that I, I don't know where I got this idea. Uh, on week one, I said that this came from the 1980s in a cheesy uh, leadership book that was called God is My Co-Pilot. Turns out that book, if it existed, has been wiped from the history of the internet, which is unlikely. So probably I just got something infused or made it up. Uh, but actually the origins of this idea or this phrase that God is my co-pilot, to what I could find, uh, showed up much earlier than the 1980s. Uh, the origin was from a 1943 autobiography that eventually became a 1945 movie of that same name, God is my co-pilot. And the story uh, tells the story of Robert Lee Scott Jr., who served with the Flying Tigers in the U.S. Air Force uh, in China and Burma during World War II. And, and so this movie came out, and it's kind of interesting just where it lands. Uh, like I said, it was in 1945, and it was kind of like the last of those great World War II, like patriotic kind of propaganda-ish movies that rolled out. Like, you know, the ones that you probably heard about in school where it was like all black and white, like news from across the seas. It, this was like the last one uh, of one of those movies. And it was interesting because it told uh, Robert's story in, in a pretty much historically accurate way. Some people dispute the whole like God co-pilot spiritualized dimension of it, but uh, it was kind of the last of those great movies. And it did pretty well uh, in theaters. It was released by Warner Brothers. And uh, beyond that, I couldn't find any other references to this phrase, but it's really fascinating. It's just kind of like worked its way into our culture that uh, this phrase or this idea that God is our co-pilot. And maybe one reason that it kind of stuck around is because it doesn't sound all that bad on the surface, right? Like God is my co-pilot. It's like you're saying, as I'm piloting the plane that is my life, God is right there with me, right? He's alongside me. He's going through everything. He's giving me instructions and guidance on where to go. And he's right there when I need him. He's telling me like where to go and how to live my life. He's with me through it all. And you can almost picture it, right? In case you can't, I found this sticker that maybe a little bit irreverently will show you what it's like. But like imagine you're flying your big 747 of a life, right? And you're like trying to make it through stuff. And you look over and sitting right next to you is this guy, it's co-pilot Jesus in his amazing co-pilot hat, right? Like ready to be there, give insight on demand. It, it doesn't sound awful. It sounds good like for him to be right there next to you. Whenever you need him, you can call on him and he'll give you the answer. He'll pull the lever or whatever it may be. If you gotta go to the bathroom, right? Take the reins, Lord, and you come back. It doesn't sound awful on the surface, but I think that's the very thing that makes this phrase so potentially dangerous. It, is it actually sounds kind of good. It sounds like a person who takes their relationship with God seriously. But if you like go beneath the surface of what you're really saying when you say God is my co-pilot, you're actually describing the nature of our relationship with God in terms that God would never agree to. In terms that actually put the relationship totally upside down to what Jesus said about how we can relate with God. It's not a healthy view of how we relate with God. And uh, I read a leadership book one time, I don't even remember which book it was, but I remember it made this claim that sometimes the enemy of the great things in our lives aren't the bad things, it's good things. That, that sometimes the enemy of great things in our life uh, is just good things. Because normally with the bad things in our life, we can identify them and we know to avoid them. But good things can actually distract us. We can spend a ton of energy and focus on good things 
and end up missing on greater things uh, because we put so much energy in, in something a little lesser. And so in this case, God as your co-pilot might seem like a good thing. Like maybe when you're like, man, if I look at where I came from, if I look at the decisions I used to make, it's just good news he's on the plane, right? <laughs> like, like I used to be flying on my own and it was pretty turbulent and it wasn't great. So God as my co-pilot feels like progress. And, and if that's you, like, that's a good thing. It's good to celebrate change that you've made in your life and progress that you've made and, and how far you've come along the way. But what I want to do today is I want to help you from letting a good thing, a good idea, like the idea that God is with you, keep you from the greater idea of what it really looks like to follow Jesus and the life that Jesus really wants for all of us. And so to illustrate what I mean by that, uh, we're going to look at the story of a guy, an encounter that a guy has with Jesus, uh, who was a good guy who put God in the co-pilot seat. And this guy, we don't know a lot about him. Uh, he shows up after Jesus' ministry has kind of started to take off and he's starting to gather a crowd and, and people are curious about who Jesus is. And, and this young man approaches Jesus and here's what happens. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 19. It says, just then someone came up and asked Jesus, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Yeah, it sounds like a good question, right? Like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to receive life that you've described, this eternal life, this life with God, this thing that we desire. If you're honest, uh, maybe today that's kind of the question you're asking. Like, I don't know what brought you into church this morning, bonus points on your lost hour of sleep and being here, but, but maybe it's this deep question of like, what do I need to do to live right with God? What do I need to do to experience life to the full? Like I've heard it described before, like Jesus talked about. Basically, this guy wants to know, like, am I good with God? Like, what do I need to do to make sure that things are cleared up, that I'm good, and that God's good with me? And so he asks this question, and interestingly, Jesus kind of initially almost brushes the question off to the side. This guy says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus replies and says, why do you ask me about what is good? He says to him, there is only one who is good, and if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. It's like, wow, thanks, Jesus kind of a big deal to me, right? I'm trying to figure out how to follow you and follow this invisible God. And, and Jesus on the surface is kind of like, what are you asking me for? Like, you know God's good. You've been given these commandments, go do it. it it's, it's very simple. But the guy, the young man in the story, he doesn't accept that answer. He wants more from Jesus. And so he asks a follow-up question. He says, which ones? He asked him. Like, he's like, all of them? Really? Like, can I just do the odd-numbered ones? Or what are you talking about? And so Jesus starts to list them off. And Jesus answers, and he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is quoting this very famous list of commands from God. We know them as the Ten Commandments, right? It's Charlton Heston brought them down from the mountain and all that stuff. But uh, Jesus, once again, gives the guy what feels like an obvious answer. Jesus says, like, hey, follow the commandments, like all of them. Here they are, and he starts listing them off, and he's quoting what every good Jewish boy and every good Jewish girl would have known in this moment. He gives, once again, an extremely obvious answer to what seems like a really deep question. And so the man follows up one more time, and he says to Jesus, I've kept all of these, the young man said. What do I still lack? And in this moment, this isn't exactly where we're going today, but I feel some empathy towards this guy in this moment. Because uh, what he's saying is, is he's like, Jesus, I've, I've done it, right? Like, didn't murder anybody today. We're good there. Didn't, like, go crazy. Didn't steal anything. Like, I know the Big Ten. I'm sticking with them, okay? Like, we're good. Uh, but then he, like, makes this confession. He's like, what do I still lack? So he's saying, I've done everything right, Jesus. Like, I think I followed the instruction manual correctly, 
but it still feels like I'm missing something. It, it still doesn't feel like that life to the full that you're describing. And, and I think many of us have felt that way before, right? Like, I, I think I've done the right things, but I don't feel like I'm there yet, and, and it can be so frustrating. And, and what this is revealing is really just the dead-end road of good religious behavior. The dead-end road of, like, behavior management, being like, I, I did enough, right? I'm good enough, aren't I? But it doesn't actually get us to the full life that God promises to us. And so Jesus knows that. And so finally, he gets to the heart of the matter with this guy, and, and he turns back to him. The, the man says, hey, what, what do I lack, or what else do I need to do? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And for some of us, we may be like, okay, I'd ask, but I can do that. I don't have that many possessions, right? I can give a little bit away and it's good to take care of the poor and, and then I'll follow Jesus. No big deal. But not for this guy. In fact, for this guy, Jesus hit on something big here because Matthew uh, tells us about the man's reaction to this instruction from Jesus. All the other instructions, he's been like, got it, got it, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But this one where he says, give away your possessions. It says, when the man heard that, when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now again, for us in our culture, probably all of us have many possessions if we're honest, right? If we do inventory, the Amazon boxes pile up, I get it. Uh, But like, that's not what he's talking about here. In, In this culture, what Matthew is saying is that this guy was rich like really, really rich, disproportionately rich to the other people around him. And, and so he had a lot to hold on to. And when Jesus offers this instruction and says, sell the things that you own, let, let go of some of your possessions, give to the poor, the man turns away sad and he leaves. So there's kind of this fascinating thing that happens here that I really want to highlight for you, right? The man asks the question the first time and Jesus gives like the broadest answer possible. Like, you know that God's good, follow what he said. See you later. And the guy asks a follow-up question. And so Jesus gives another obvious answer. And he's like, here's the Ten Commandments. Okay, remember those? Do those. I'll see you later, right? And then Jesus goes on and he gives this man an instruction that's not in the Ten Commandments. He he gives an instruction that's uh, certainly like in theme shows up in Scripture and shows up in the commandments, but it's not like a direct commandment that Jesus is quoting in this moment. And why does he do that? Why does he suddenly change his posture in the last question? And And he offers this man something that's a little more targeted, like I said earlier, it's because Jesus knows that managing our behavior isn't actually the pathway to connect with God. There's this lesson that we can see time and time again in how God shows up uh, to people throughout scripture. And, And that lesson is that God isn't only interested in our outward behavior. That God isn't just interested in us checking off all the right boxes. He, like, I'm glad you're here today, but he does not have the sticker chart with your, like, church attendance. He's like, good, they're above average. They'll make it. Like, that's not how it all works. God ultimately isn't just interested in how we manage our outward obedience, as important as it may be, but rather God is ultimately interested in our heart, like our whole heart, our whole self. He wants all of us, not just our actions and not just going through the motions. And uh, I was thinking about this and uh, I almost brought with me, uh, my daughter has this little uh, Minnie Mouse ride-on airplane it's got like a cool steering wheel on it and like the propellers actually spin and it's fun. I was gonna bring it and I actually thought about like sitting on it as an illustration, but I thought one, she's gonna catch me taking that out of the house and I'm gonna be in trouble and I don't wanna deal with that this afternoon. And two, if I sit on the thing, I'm probably gonna break it or at least embarrass myself. So I didn't bring it with me, uh, but I was yesterday, uh, it was nice enough out. I was finally cleaning up my garage after like months of neglect. And as I was cleaning it out, I realized that my daughter has a lot of toys like that. 
They're like the little like ride-on things. Like she's got the airplane thing. Uh, she's got a scooter that she can ride on. She's got a tricycle now. Uh, she used to, when she was a baby, had this little elephant that you could ride on that you could kind of steer around. She's got the cozy coop. I mean, we all wanted the cozy coop back in the day, right? And so she's got all these things. And I was just thinking like, what's the common dynamic around all these toys that my daughter loves? It's got a steering wheel. Like she's got the capacity to take that thing and point it wherever she wants to go. And, and for her, like that's freedom, right? It's like, we're gonna go around the block on the tricycle, off she goes. We, most of us don't grow out of this, right? That's why it was so exciting when you finally got car keys in high school and you're like, freedom, right? I, I can, I'm in control, I can do my own thing. And uh, when this guy, this young guy approaches Jesus and he asks this question, like, how do I inherit eternal life? He, he's basically asking this question, like, how do I follow you in a way that leads to the things that you've promised? How do I follow God in a way that makes my life fulfilled, like you've said, is possible? And Jesus lists off a few things, and the guy's feeling pretty good, because he's like, cool, I do those things, I'm good. But remember, he goes on and he asks, I've kept all of these. The young man says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? Or other translations actually say that the man asked, what else must I do? And why do you think he asked that? Like, like Jesus has already given him the list and the guy's already checked off all the boxes. Why didn't he just say like, awesome, thanks Jesus, I nailed it. Like, see you in heaven, off he goes. Like, why doesn't he walk away content? I think he asked this question because he knows something's still not right. He knows something is still missing. He talks about this lack that he has, this longing that he has, this unsatisfied, unsettled uh, thing within him. He knew he wasn't experiencing the life that Jesus offers, but his assumption on the other side of that was that he needed to do something. His assumption was that he needed to steer the ship, right? He also must like the little ride-on toys where you can hold onto the steering wheel because that's how he was viewing his life. He was saying, I'm in control. I'm in charge. I'm the one who has to do the right things. I'm the one who has to fix it. I'm the one who has to find a way. He's gripping onto the steering wheel of his own life saying, I'm the one in charge. And so that when Jesus, when he asks Jesus what's missing, Jesus eventually goes right after this guy's heart. And he says, hey, you need to let go of your possessions. And that was when it was too much for the man. See, when, when he asked, what else must I do? Jesus basically looked at this young man and he says, you gotta let go of the wheel. You gotta let go of the wheel. You gotta let go of control. And before you get all Carrie Underwood on me here, like I'm not just trying to give you a simple answer to a complex question, okay? That's actually at the heart of what this series is about is not answering complex questions with just simple one-liners. Uh, although because I'm snarky, I have to share with you one of my favorite memes uh, with Jesus Take the Wheel. Uh, it's this image right here where life is going a little off the rails. It says, not that wheel, Jesus, <laughs> right? <laughs> We've all been there before. But um, I don't want to oversimplify. But what Jesus is saying to this man, he's saying, you got to let go of that thing that you're clinging on to, even if it's a good thing. You got to let go of that thing that's getting in the way of you experiencing a full and abundant life with me. In other words, Jesus is saying, you got to give me the steering wheel to your life. You've got to give me control over not just your external religious behavior, but give me control over the things that are really driving you, the things that are really motivating you, the things that really shape your life. Jesus is essentially telling this man that the full life that you're after is found on the other side of your control. That, that it's not our job to do everything right and get everything right and somehow like will our way into the kingdom of God, but rather, Jesus is saying, you gotta let go of it. 
You've got to trust me somewhere along the way. And just for a second, like, I want to stop and ask you, what are you holding on to? Like, we're in church, right? We all know the right answer is Jesus, only Jesus, right? But, but like, practically, go a little deeper than that. What are you really holding on to uh, when it relates to where you're spending your time? What are you really holding on to as it relates to where you're spending your money? What are you really holding on to in terms of the things that you fear most? Like, like, like what motivates you the most? What makes you the most unsettled or, or, or most nervous? What has your focus? What good thing, or maybe not so good thing, is getting in the way of the greater full life that God has for you and God has for me? Because all of us can struggle with this, right? All of us along the way struggle with this temptation or this desire to be like, I'm the one in control. I'm the one steering this ship, right? I've got my plan and I know where I'm going. And in case you're like struggling to think through it, let me give you some examples. Like maybe for you, it's the same thing that this young man struggled with. It's money, it's possessions, it's stuff. If so, you shouldn't be ashamed and you shouldn't be surprised because Jesus actually described money as the chief competitor for our devotion, the chief competitor for our hearts. It is so easy for us to drift into thinking if we just have more stuff or just like a more stable bank account. It, it, then, then we would be okay. And, and this can happen on either side of the equation. Do you know how much you want to make this next year? I guarantee I know it. How much money you want to make this next year? More, right? All of us, we want to make just a little more every time. Uh, or, or like if you don't have enough, it can be this thing that's got a hold of your life because you're like, I'm just trying to make ends meet. It's paycheck to paycheck to paycheck and it's taking all my attention. And to be honest, money is not an evil thing. Okay, I'm not like shaking my finger at money. I'm, money's not a good thing and it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. But the problem happens when we grasp on to our money and our possessions for safety and for security and for fulfillment in our lives. And, and again, we can all fall into this, right? You're scrolling through Instagram and then that ad pops up and you see it and you're like, oh man, they look great. And then suddenly you click through it and then it's like one click away and you, you bought it and then it's coming your way, right? The boxes pile up. I've seen them, like my porch too. Okay, it can be so easy to fall into money becoming the thing that we hold on to the most tightly. Or, or maybe that's not it for you. Maybe for you it's a little more like in your identity and, and it's this idea of success. Maybe success at any cost, right? You, you wanna be successful whether it's at work and, and to your peers or at school or within your family or, or to your friend group or even just to the broader world. You wanna appear competent and successful and capable and you think like if I just get to the next level, then it'll be enough. Right? If I just like, impress a few more people, then I'll finally be okay with me. Maybe for you it is other people. It's trying to get everybody to like you. And you fall into this people-pleasing nature where you just like, figure out what the people around you, or at least what the like, most influential people in the group want, and you morph to become whatever they want because as long as they like me, everything's okay. Right? And, and the worst thing that you could ever imagine is having conflict with somebody just floating out there. And so for you, you fall into this people-pleasing nature where you're endlessly searching for the approval of others. And, and so then you're constantly distracted by like, am I okay, am I okay, am I okay? And it can grab a hold of our lives. Maybe for you, it's simpler than that. Maybe it's just the pursuit of pleasure, right? Because life's hard and you need an escape. And so take your pick, whether it's sex or food or entertainment or alcohol or something else that you want to go after. You're just like, I just need a little bit of a break. And so you go after it until it doesn't work anymore. And then you go back to it until it doesn't work anymore. And on and on and on you go. But it's ultimately the thing that you're holding on to the tightest. Or on the other side, maybe it's perfectionism. 
maybe you're like, no, 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 I got to check off the boxes, man. Like, <laughs> I, I know what's expected of me and I got to live up to it. And, and because of that, you can't accept that you have flaws and you can't allow yourself to make mistakes. And in the midst of that, you can't really receive any grace for those mistakes because you're so busy gripping on to your ideal of whatever perfect looks like for you. Just like the young guy that approached Jesus, so many of us, we're like white knuckling the steering wheel of our lives for good things that are lesser than the great thing that God wants for us. Everything that I just named, they're not inherently evil, they're not inherently bad. Money is not inherently evil, success isn't bad, even having approval from other people, that's not a bad thing. Pleasure is not ultimately a bad thing in the proper context. The pursuit of like a high standard or goodness, that's not a bad thing totally in and of itself. But what many of us can do is we get confused because we've taken these good things in our life and we've elevated them to ultimate things. A and maybe for you in your story, you're like, I've taken some steps in my life. Like I've followed the rules and I've allowed God to have a say and you're proud of that and, th and that makes total sense and yet you're still here and you're asking, what else? Is this it? Is this ultimately all that following Jesus is about, is like making sure I do all the right things on and on and on until eternity? Or maybe you're asking, what else must I do to get the full life that Jesus says he has for me? Here's the maybe slightly cheesy but powerful truth. Like if you've bought into the idea that God is your co-pilot, here's the truth of what we all need to do. If God is our co-pilot, we need to switch seats. If God is our co-pilot, we've got to switch seats because that's not the way that the relationship was ever designed to work. It's not the way that life was designed to work with God just kind of off to the side whenever we need him. We can like tap in and let him take over for a little bit and then we get back in the reins and we tell the thing where to go. That's, that's not how God wants this relationship to work. God has never been content to sit in the co-pilot seat of our lives, but rather Jesus spelled it out incredibly clearly. Uh, he gathered his followers together and he said this to them. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. And if you try and hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll actually save it. I mean, that's pretty direct, right? If you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Jesus isn't interested in being the backup pilot. And what Jesus is describing here, this relationship, it's not like a Jesus book club or anything like that. He's talking about actually surrendering our whole lives to him. Like the things that matter most, the areas that we struggle the most to surrender them. He's saying like, get out of the captain's seat and give the wheel completely to him. He's saying that in order to truly follow him, to like really be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, we have to be prepared to shift the center of gravity in our lives off of me and my plan and on to God and his plan, onto the things that matter most to him. Uh, maybe to put it a little more simply, if we wanna grab onto God's kingdom, we first have to let go of our own. Th that if we want to experience life the way Jesus described is possible, first we have to let go of our grip and our assumption that we know what's best, that we know the plan for our lives. And, and like, don't miss how incredibly intense what Jesus says here is. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And in the culture where Jesus was saying this, the cross wasn't like a cute, comforting metaphor. Uh, like nobody was wearing cross necklaces in this day. The hipsters did not have cross tattoos yet. Like this was not a thing. Rather, the cross in its context was a form of capital punishment. If Jesus were here right now and he were saying this to us in our context, he would say something like, sit in your electric chair and follow me or grab the lethal injection, right? Like, 
It's like, whoa, that's uncomfortable. That's intense. Anybody who heard Jesus say this invitation would have had an immediate and intense reaction to the idea of taking up your cross because taking up your cross implies an all-in, no-going-back commitment. It implies like this is it. When people took up their cross, that was it for them. There was no turning back, and that is so different than what so many of us are used to hearing or thinking about it as it relates to our faith. See, Jesus was making sure that the terms of the relationship are painfully clear, that he wants total and full surrender from us, that, that he wants us to trust us fully with our lives, and that's how we actually experience the full life that he has for us. And if you don't feel this, uh, let me name it for you. That is so much easier said than done. Okay, that is so much easier in a moment to be like, yes, Jesus, you get it all, and then you like cut somebody off in traffic, and you're like, except for that. <laughs> like, we all can fall into that, and a lot of us are okay with the idea of God as a tag-along. God there when I need him, right? God in my God box, and then when I go to work, I open up my work box, and that's who I am, and then when I'm at school, that's who I am, and then when I'm with my family, that's who I am, and then, oh, Sunday again, back in my God box. Like, so many of us are content to let that be the terms of the relationship with God, but that's never what God asked for from us. This idea of total surrender, of letting God take the reins of all of it, it can be so much more difficult to do, but it's ultimately what we're called to do. It's where the power and the fullness of life actually lies. And even if we're open to that idea, like even if we're like, okay, I get it. That sounds hard, but it sounds good. It can be hard to figure out how to actually live it out. And I think one of the reasons for that is because if you like dig down beneath the service, it's hard to actually trust God in all these areas, right? Like at some point, whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is that it seems too hard to let go of, in that area, you probably believe or find it hard to believe that surrendering that to God is really in your best interest. Like, like what if God asks me to do something I don't want to do? What if, what if he leads me to somewhere that I would rather not go, right? And, and what about the blueprint for my life that I've been working on for years, right? What about everything that I've built? I've heard God has a track record of messing with that stuff. And so we're like, ugh, right? It's mine, I gotta hold on to it. I don't know if I can trust him. And I think many of us deep down believe at some level that God is trying to keep us from the good stuff of life. That, that God somehow doesn't get it, but nothing could actually be further from the truth. Like, let's talk about money for a second. When God calls us to be people whose lives are marked by generosity, he knows that life is better when you're open-handed, that, that life actually works better when you have this understanding that everything that we've received is a gift from him that we steward for a short while, Th that ultimately it doesn't go with you in the end, right? Like life is better. It's just simply a better and a more clear way to live. Or when God tells us to carry one another's burdens, he's not just trying to like annoy us with annoying people or something or like punish us in some way, but God knows that living in true, authentic community is better than a life of isolation. Uh, like like when, God, when God says, hey, we should put him first in our life above everything else, it's not because God is lonely and needy and wants some attention from us, but rather it's because he knows that when we put the weight of God on anything else in our life, it eventually can't hold it. Right? Eventually the weight of who God is meant to be in our lives, it can't be held by anything else. And that's why so many of us turn to thing after thing after thing and thing after thing after thing lets us down. He knows that putting him first and surrendering him completely is actually the pathway to fully live life as it was designed to work. So if it's easier said than done, what does it look like to actually like get out of that captain's seat 
and to let God have control. It's a simple word that can be so difficult to live out, but have such powerful implications in our life. And the word is simply this, it's surrender. It's the willingness to like pry those fingers open and let go of control, not necessarily knowing the outcome, but trusting the one that you're giving control to. Right? Not knowing the outcome, but it begins by seeing everything that we are and everything that we have. Like every skill, every talent, every experience, every resource, all the way down to the mini airplane in my house, right? Like like everything that we have, it starts with us viewing all those things as a gift from God that is ultimately God's to use. A a gift from God that's ultimately God's to use. And, And if you think about it, who would be better qualified to use the gift than the one who gave it to us in the first place? Than the one who made us in that way in the first place? Here's the simple but demanding challenge on us that I want to invite us all into together, and and I'm here with you. It's to let go of the wheel. It's to let go of the thing that you're holding on to, that thing that dominates your thoughts, that thing that's stressing you out more than anything else. What if you actually let go of it and you invited Jesus to have control of that? What if you actually surrendered? And again, (laughs) I want you to understand, this isn't like a cliche, let go and let God that's what we're talking like against throughout this series, okay? I'm not just saying like, like passively back away and like whatever God wants to happen will happen. I'll be okay. That's not what I'm talking about. We're called to join God in the work of helping connect people's story to God's story. We're, we're called to join God in remaking this world into what he wants it to be. Uh, but God designed that to happen through an active partnership with him. God didn't go like, here, take the wheel, good luck, make the world into something. But rather, he said, like, loosen up the grip let me take control and you can be a part of it all, right? Come with me, partner with me along the way. He's God and we're not. And that's actually incredibly good news if he's as trustworthy as he's proven himself to be time and time again in countless people's lives. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.